0: Okay, hello everyone and welcome to Actus Radio, the nation's only radio program dedicated to the clinical documentation improvement profession. Actus Radio is a bi-weekly program dedicated to bringing you closer to the difference makers in CDI and sharing the latest news and information relevant to the CDI profession and Actus. Today, Wednesday, April 11th marks our 94th program. So my name is Brian Murphy, director of ACTUS, the Association of Clinical Documentation Improvement Specialists. and I'm your host for today's program, ACTUS Conference Preview, CDI for Surgeons. I'm joined today by my familiar co-host at left on your screen, Laurie Prescott. Laurie is the CDI Education Director for us here at ACTUS in Middleton, Massachusetts. She's the developer and lead instructor for our ACTUS Boot Camp line. Can see her background there on the screen. She's a former CDI manager and nursing manager with experience in med surge, ICU, PACU, and endoscopy uh, and has been really busy for us with some training materials and some books there. So we're glad to have her on the show. Um, welcome to the program, Laurie.
1: Thanks, Brian.
0: Okay. And next, I'd like to introduce today's industry guest. I was joking with uh, Dr. Lasharate before the show. I've known Trey for many years, and he's spoken at our ACTIS conference many times, uh, in our pre-con and on the main conference, but he's never graced ACTIS radio. Well, that's that's changed today. We've got him on the show, and I'm glad to have uh, Trey Lasharate. For those that don't know Trey, he's the medical director for CDI encoding at the University of Tennessee Medical Center in Knoxville. Um, he's a past ACTUS Advisory Board member. As I just mentioned, he's a regular presenter at our pre-conference Physician Advisor camp and is coming back again in that role in 2018. Um, besides being a hospitalist, he's a Clinical Assistant Professor of Internal Medicine and is the Curriculum Director of the Residencies Programs Rotation. He's also the Medical Director of the Outpatient CDI Initiative for UTMC's Primary Care Network, he wears a lot of hats. Uh, for UTMC, and I'm glad to have him on the show. So, uh, welcome to the program, Trey.
2: Thanks for having me, Brian. It's an honor to be here.
0: All right. Well, as I always do, I'm going to start with a uh, poll question related to today's topic. Um, we ask that you pick the one that best pertains uh, to your to your documentation regarding uh, your, your surgeons. So the question reads, how would you describe the overall state of your surgeon's documentation? Um, would you describe it as good, which we have classified here as minimal clarifications needed? Uh, fair, maybe needs uh, regular queries to your surgeons. Would you describe it as poor, one are your bigger problem areas? This one I threw in there you know, for a little laugh here. Wait the surgeons even document. We'll, we'll have Trey answer that question in a few minutes. Um, and then don't know or not applicable. Again, um, how would you describe the overall state of your surgeon's documentation? Uh, good, fair, poor, not sure if they even do document in the record, or don't know, not applicable. Uh, we've got about 75% of our audience that has voted, um, so we'll go ahead and we'll close that out, and then we will uh, come back to these results in just a few minutes. All right, so as I mentioned today, our guest today is uh, Trey Lasharate. Dr. Lasharate, welcome to the program. Thanks again for being a part of Actus Radio. Well, thanks for having me, Brian. All right. Well, maybe to start with, could you talk a little bit about some of the reasons why, you know, surgeons may have this reputation? We're going to see where that poll results in a few minutes, but why, why they have a repu- rep- reputation as poor documenters as a group? I know they're all different, but just in general, what what, what is the issue with, with surgeons? Well,
2: I think surgeons spend a lot of their training being um, told that the most important thing is why they're going to the operating room. So they spend time talking about you know, what needs to be fixed, uh, but they tend to gloss over all of the other uh, medical conditions that affect their patients. They don't particularly feel like they're treating them because that's not why they're uh, opening them up on the table. Um, when you add in the fact that uh surgeons are uh, reimbursed on a global fee system um in other words they don't submit daily charges so there's no impetus for them to write good notes to justify their ENM submissions that's why you have poor documentation from most of your surgical specialties
0: Gotcha Thanks Trey
1: So Trey um you know I I have lived with surgeons so I do you understand they are a challenge. But what's a, what are some of the suggestions that you have for improving, improving their documentation? Do you think they should document everything? And when I say that, I'm not even sure what everything means. Um, so if you can help us understand that. And the other um, issue I'd like to touch on is that you also strongly advocate for rounding with um, your, surg- your surgery service lines and showing them the denials and showing them the data of why their um, documentation is so important. Do you do do that with your surgeons?
2: Oh, absolutely. So I think the main thing to remember is that any request to a surgeon to improve their documentation really represents a paradigm shift in their belief system. Um, Mm -hmm. One of the perceived benefits when they uh, were choosing their specialty for residency of a career in surgery was hey I don't have to write those darn medicine notes anymore um, and no they don't have to write those darn medicine notes anymore but they do have to get credit for the work that they do they do have to accurately reflect how sick their patients are I have yet to meet a surgeon who doesn't believe they operate on sicker patients than the people down the street well. You know, that may very well be true, but if you don't document that in the record, if you don't show me that in the record, then we can't prove it. Um one of my favorite things to do is to go to the insurance company websites and pull up their particular specialty in the find a doc section and say, G Doc, where's your name? And if I have to scroll, you know, to page three, four, or five to find it, uh that's a problem. Uh, and they don't like that, and a lot of that has to do with risk adjustment, and, of course, risk adjustment has everything to do with their documentation and how accurately they report the severity of illness of their patients. So I think rounding with them is very good. I think preventing, presenting them with publicly available uh, data and these kinds of payer-herding techniques uh, goes a long way to improving their documentation habits.
1: I love that.
0: Thank you. Yeah, great stuff um trey i know you, there's so much you're going to be covering at, at your conference presentation on this topic but maybe you could talk a little bit about um what i think will probably be a big part of your presentation from what i've seen you know the the, the issue of post-operative complications um you know some of the complexities that are exist for surgeons and for the cdis reviewing these cases you know what what is truly an a expected outcome versus true complication and and really navigating that, that tricky um, scenario there. Well, as you guys know, uh, coders
2: aren't supposed to apply complication codes unless the surgeon specifically states something that happened is a complication. The problem is uh, really twofold. A lot of surgeons document anything that happens as a complication, and then a lot of coders are also trained in pattern recognition. They see that problem Y happened after X was done, and then we had to fix Y, so therefore that's a complication. So surgeons have to learn um, uh, that they need better documentation habits to be able to say things like, well, this happened, but it was expected, or it was unavoidable because of this facet of the patient's anatomy, or because they had so many previous surgeries, I can't get through all these adhesions, or the tumor had grown so much and was so adherent to this tissue, that's why it tore. Um, They've got to tell someone whether or not something was expected or whether or not it was a true error. Gotcha.
1: you. So, uh, Trey, I've had the privilege to take a sneak peek at your presentation that you're going to do in ACTIS, and I noticed that you offer some great ideas for documentation tips by service line. Could you um, maybe share a small taste of what's to come, perhaps cardiothoracic or trauma surgery?
2: Sure. Um, for CT surgeons, obviously their you know bread and butter, their one of their favorite procedures is the coronary artery bypass grafting procedure. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, frequently the documentation is not great, and the coders are left to figure out what happened from some cheesy diagram. Uh, so CT surgeons really need to be a little more specific in their in their cabbage uh, operative notes. In particular, you know the number of vessels they bypassed, if they used an internal artery, which one and to which coronary artery did they attach it? If they harvested a vein graft, where did that vein graft come from? And then where did they attach it in terms of both the origin, usually the aorta, but also where did it terminate, i.e. which coronary artery? Um, then there are other specificities they need to include. Did they use any non-autologous grafts? Did they use any synthetic substitute grafts? Um, Did they use cardiopulmonary bypass? Those kinds of things all need to be listed in the chart, and sometimes the coder can only discern that maybe from the anesthesia notes. Um, In terms of trauma, uh, my experiences with uh, most trauma programs is they don't understand that they need to document every single uh, injury that the patient and curves, including contusions and small lacerations and all of these things. The bottom line is um, all of these different uh, traumatic injuries might add up to place the patient in the MST, or the Multiple Significant Trauma DRGs, and there's no way the surgeons can learn which diagnoses and which combinations of diagnoses get in there. So they've got to absolutely get every possible injury listed. The other thing I've noticed about trauma surgeons is they just assume all these lab abnormalities that uh, show up on their patients are just part of the underlying process of trauma. They don't put any descriptive labels on the low hemoglobin hematocrits, the high CPK levels, the high lactic acid levels, uh, all these things. They need to put labels on these things so that they get credit for the work that they do.
1: Perfect answer. You can't see me going yes in the background, but that's perfect advice for the surgeon. I appreciate that.
0: Okay. Hey, hey, we, Trey, we've we've got an interesting question or two that came in that I'll that I'll pose to you that I, I think you'll be able to take. I'm sure you've you've heard many of these objections from surgeons by now, um, but I've had one of our listeners, Diane, has asked, how would you handle this comment? Um, and the comment is from the surgeon, presumably. Why does this matter to me when I get paid regardless? And that's after maybe you show them SOIROM and the impact it can have. So the whole, you know, the whole payment issue, different, separate payment. Any thoughts Absolutely. there?
2: Oh, I, oh, I have some. Um,
0: <laughs> and that is
2: <laughs> that is frequently heard pushback uh, from surgeons. And what I simply point out to them is, I will say, okay, if you're a general surgeon. G Doc, how many gallbladders does the average patient have? And they'll kind of look at me funny and (laughs) tilt their head with the deer in the headlights look, and then they'll go, well, one. And I say, right, so how many new patients do you have to have if you're going to make a career out of taking out gallbladders? And they said a lot, and the answer is correct. So where are those new patients going to come from? If you want to keep getting those new patients into your practice, then you've got to keep hammering your publicly reported data and make sure you look like you're taking care of sick patients. So this really does have significant impact on your long-term viability as a provider. Um, you know, And then I'll ask them, do you have any school loans? Uh, do you want to educate your kids? Uh, these kinds of things. And I go, oh, okay, well, maybe that does matter.
0: <laughs> and then uh, one, one other one, I, I believe you'll probably be covering this um, in at the May conference, but person writes, Kathy writes, uh, surgeons are hesitant to document acute blood loss anemia post-procedure, uh, the old ABLA. And, and, and any suggestions there about this one? Sure. So what's happening is the surgeon is worried about getting
2: dinged for a complication because he's been or she's been beat up with performance improvement data for the last decade or two because all these different uh, programs count something like that perhaps as a complication. Well, that's fine, but here's the deal. If you look at how all of these things are calculated, what happens is if you're accurately reporting how sick your patient is and all the disease processes that affect them, what you'll see over time is your complication rates actually go down because one diagnosis that might be considered a complication at one severity of illness suddenly becomes expected at a higher level of severity of illness based on those various calculating algorithms. So we've certainly seen that here um in the long run it really does pan out to their benefit. hmm
0: Great
1: stuff.
0: Yeah. Well Trey, I, I do want to conclude with just a question. Again, you're 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 an actus uh, conference veteran. How, how many conferences have you been to at this point? That's one thing I wanted to say. Every single one. Every Yay. single one? Oh my Every gosh. single one Sounds since no one. You were out at uh, Caesar's Palace then. And, That's uh, right. Wow. How about that? I wasn't sure about the earliest ones. I know you've been with me for quite some time. You know, is is there anything that you look forward to um, at the Actors Conference most of all? Um, I know you're going to be presenting the pre-cons. You're doing this session during the, the main conference. But and anything that you, you you take out of the conference or are most looking forward to this Well, year? It,
2: I... Look forward to it every year for the same reason. Every time I go, every time I come back, I come back with a ton of stuff to consider implementing here or some other yeah. idea that maybe I need to expand upon or I had some sidebar conversation and someone said this and oh, hey, that's great for my elevator speech. You know, I always get something extremely valuable out of this conference. It's just fantastic.
0: Absolutely. Well, thank you very much. I'm looking forward to seeing you there again. Uh, For our listeners, if you are planning on coming to the conference this year, again, we're May 21 to 24 in uh, San Antonio, Texas. Still time to register. Uh, We'd still love to have you there. We've got plenty of room. We're in a great spot right on the Riverwalk, a brand-new convention center. Um, The one we used in 2015, I think I mentioned this before, in the program was completely demolished, Trey. They've built a brand-new convention center, same spot, Uh, but it's state-of-the-art, so we're really looking forward to uh, bringing you some first-class education in a a gorgeous city and in a great location. Sounds fantastic. Thanks again, Trey. All right, let's go ahead, and we're going to go ahead and uh, share our uh, poll results from the program today. So again, we asked you all, how would you describe the overall state of your surgeon's documentation? So 21% said good, minimal clarifications needed. Uh, 48% said fair, needs regular queries. 22% uh, describe it as poor, one of their bigger problem areas, or their biggest problem areas. Uh, 5%, they may have realized their phys- their surgeons document in the chart. Uh, and 3% don't know or not applicable. Um, Again, I always reiterate that not all of our listeners are either working in CDI immediately or in in, an acute care hospital. So uh, those are our options. Anything there that surprises you, Trey?
2: No. I mean, where do you hide $100 from a surgeon? And the answer is in the chart. Um, (laughs) I'm I'm surprised only 22% said poor, actually. So,
0: (laughs) There you go. Laurie, anything there surprise you at all?
1: Well, I looked at it and I thought, well, we have 21% at good and 48% at fair, which proves that surgeons can learn. So, um, you know, that encourages us to to keep talking to them. I go to a lot of places where people do workarounds. If they don't think the surgeon's going to answer, they go through the hospital list. But I think we need to remember that if we teach the source at the beginning, maybe we wouldn't have to do those workarounds. So surgeons can learn, keep keep trying.
0: Right. All right. Well, thanks, guys. Appreciate that, Trey. And uh, we're going to move to our in the news segment. Again, in the news is a regular segment featuring the latest news and industry updates relevant to the CDI profession and to Actis. Today, I'd like to highlight a recent article that we published in CDI Strategies and is presently available on the Actus website. Uh, it reads, SIRS beats QSOFA for sepsis screening. Uh, this article, in short, is a summary of a recent study published in the Annals of Internal Medicine. Uh, it's summarized here by our two CDI Pocket Guide authors, uh, Richard, uh, Dr. Richard Pinson and Cynthia Tang. Um, I'm going to summarize some of the article here, but encourage you guys to look at it in full. And as I always do, I provide the link in the show notes um, for Actus Radio. But essentially, you know, a newly published report from the Annals of Internal Medicine found that uh, SIRS criteria had greater sensitivity than than quick sepsis-related organ failure assessment, or that qSOFA criteria, as a screening test to initiate treatment for sepsis non intensive care ICU patients um, so the current authoritative clinical standard for diagnosis of sepsis known as sepsis three as adopted by the uh, surviving sepsis campaign. you can read that full definition in that link there uh, now define sepsis as a life threatening organ dysfunction caused by a dysregulated host response to infection um, organ dysfunction defining sepsis is defined by a score of two points or more on the uh, SOFA score. And, you know, as of March 2017, for the authors here, sepsis is no longer thoroughly defined as SIRS due to infection, which we know it traditionally has been. Uh, the sepsis-3 definition was published in the Journal of the AMA in February 2016. It, um, however, this, this definition acknowledged that implementation of the sepsis-3 definition mm-hmm. using the full SOFA score would be difficult outside of the ICU setting. So what this study also recommended was using an unvalidated screening test called QSOFA. Um, This is the presence of two or more of three findings would prompt the determination of the full SOFA score uh, change. And those those three criteria were respiratory rate uh, greater than 22, um, altered mentation, and systolic blood pressure, of less than or equal to uh, 100. So we have those listed there for you. And you know what's what's really happening is that um, this new study that's just come out um, has basically called that into question as a as a great screening criteria. Um, a, a report of data analysis from 38 studies called the prognostic accuracy of the quick sequential organ failure assessment for mortality in patients with suspected infection. That's a mouthful. Uh, compares the ability of SIRS and qSOFA to predict mortality in patients. Uh, the findings demonstrate that SIRS criteria actually had greater sensitivity again than than qSOFA. Again, that 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 um, not the full SOFA score, but the the quick SOFA criteria as a screening test. So our authors here, Richard and Cynthia, have said that the clear implication is that outside the ICU again outside that ICU the SERS criteria probably represent a better screening test and indication for initial treatment than QSOFA um, so they're there they're, again this is a little bit of their interpretation but interesting it's based on that study that's just come out um, so I, I know that this is an ongoing issue in hospitals um, there is a lot of confusion that remains in the industry about uh, Sepsis 3 versus Sepsis 2 and SIRS versus QSOFA. Um, we are having a session at the conference on this by Sam Antonios, who's a physician uh, on our Actus Advisory Board, who's gonna be summarizing a lot of these um, ongoing elements and some of the ways that they're handling it at, at their facility. So a lot to think about here with this article. Um, would encourage you to check it out on the Actus website. Again, I will provide the link to it um, in the show notes at the end of the program. Uh, But any thoughts from you at all, Trey, uh, on this article and and in general maybe what your facility is doing with the ongoing SIRS versus QSOFA, sepsis 2 versus sepsis 3 struggle?
2: Well, this represents, obviously, a continued debate within the medical community of whether or not we should all be adopting sepsis 3 over sepsis 2. Despite what the recovery auditors will tell you and despite what the insurance companies will tell you, most medical practitioners have not jumped with both feet on sepsis 3. Uh, in fact, there's no hospital here in East Tennessee that's using sepsis 3. Um, the, uh, when sepsis 3 came out, all of our critical care physicians, whether medicine or surgery, and our pulmonologists and our infectious disease docs, and everyone said, this is crazy. Um, if we go with sepsis 3, Uh, we're going to miss so many patients that might have potentially had sepsis, so we're going to miss those early interventions. And the whole purpose of the Surviving Sepsis Campaign was immediate early recognition to institute therapies to prevent um, them from becoming floridly septic. So our decision was we were going to stick with sepsis 2. We have stuck with sepsis 2. We feel we made a clinical decision, which was in the best interest of our patients. We are getting denials left and right from the recovery auditors and the insurance companies trying to invoke sepsis three. Um, And uh, they will flat out tell you that it is a business decision uh, on their part, um, not a medical decision. So that's the conflict uh, where things sort of stand in terms of recovery auditing pressure right now. But we're gonna stick with sepsis two because we think it's a patient care issue um we'll just have to see where this plays out
0: yeah it's interesting um again we're going back to the study here and how it may even be a better like you said for for as an early indication that that might be indicative of sepsis um laurie any thoughts here on this on this piece Well,
1: i, I completely agree with what trey was saying i'm i'm a fan of two for those Complete reasons. I remember in the days when we didn't catch it early, um, the diagnosis of sepsis pretty much met death. Um, and we've gotten so much better at recognizing the signs early. You know, what I teach in class is no matter what criteria you're using, critical thinking has to be applied to that criteria. Every patient is different. So, you know, if you're using SIRS, if you're using SEP2, if you're using SEP3, you have to look at what the patient brought to the table to start with and use your critical thinking skills and apply it to the unique situation that's in front of you. And I think a lot of times people look at criteria so black and white that they forget they have to stop and look at the unique situation that they're looking at. So that's my thoughts.
0: All right. Well, thanks, Laurie. Thanks, Trey. Um, We're gonna wrap up here with a brief ACTUS update. Again, Actus Update is a regular feature, bringing you the latest updates on what's going on inside of our association. So today I'd like to announce the election of four new Actus Advisory Board members for terms of service uh, April 2018 through April 21st. Again, as you probably saw, we had uh, over the last 10 to 12 days or so, um, our Actus Advisory Board election. Each year we elect four new board members and four um, Present board members rotate off the board. We do this to ensure continuity. We know we have eight, eight members that are remaining on for an additional year um, while getting some new new uh, thoughts and new expertise on the board. So um, we, had, we had a number of qualified applicants. We had a nomination committee that got those down to 10 finalists and you, the ACTUS membership, uh, voted on our four new board members. So we go by popular vote. And um, we're actually in the process of updating the ACTUS Advisory Board page right now, but I'll just verbally uh, reiterate who we have on the board this year. So coming on for three-year terms of service are uh, uh, probably a couple familiar names, maybe some new names for you. Um, one of them, uh, Fran Jurack, is uh, the Vice President of Clinical Innovation with Iodine. She has been a prior ACTUS Advisory Board member. She's also well-known in the ACTUS circles as a regular presenter Um, As is the author of our CCDS exam study guide and we'll welcome back Fran on the board Um, Some new faces we have Jeff Morris who's an RN BSN and CCDS He's the supervisor of CDI at University of South Alabama Health System in Mobile, Alabama Um, Brings a wealth of pediatric experience was the first CDI specialist hired at USA children and women's Um, so we're thrilled to have him on the board to bring in a little peds experience do have uh, Dr. Erica, uh, Dr. Erica Reamer. Um Dr. Reimer was an emergency physician for 25 years with expertise and documentation on um, and the professional side of billing. In 2012 she became the CDI physician advisor for University Hospitals Health System in Cleveland. Did a lot of training on ICD-10, DRG clinical validation, medical necessity denials. Um, she's been a guest on actus radio before you probably may have also seen her present at our conference we're thrilled to have her on and our final um, new board member is arena zeusman arena uh, is, is director of him coding and cdi initiatives for nyu langone health in new york arena is an rhia ccs and ccds so as you can see we've got um, a, a variety of different backgrounds, two nurses, a physician, and an HIM coding professional, all representing different aspects of the CDI profession on the board this year. We're very pleased to have them on. Um, our advisory board does everything from draft guidance for our membership in the form of white and physician papers. Um, they also inform and advise um, actus on industry issues. They, they run our quarterly conference calls uh they do quite a bit it's an important volunteer role and we're we're thrilled to have them on and just wanted to thank all of our listeners that are members of Actus and uh that have voted in the election and just a quick shout out to our four outgoing board members Dr. James Fee uh Karen Newhauser Judy Shoddy and Annie Yoon uh for their outstanding service and leadership over the past 3 years um and they're rotating off so thanks to those guys if they're out there listening Okay. Well, at this time, we're going to go ahead and wrap up uh, Actis Radio. We're going to see you back here again in two weeks for our third show running up to the 11th annual Actis Conference. We're going to be talking about mortality scores and quality data, again, featuring another great presentation on the podium at the Actus Conference. As always, if you have any suggestions for future guests, ideas about the format of the show, please send me an email. You can reach me at bmurphy at actus.org. That'll do it. Again, thanks Trey. Thanks Laurie. We'll uh see you guys in San Antonio very soon.
1: Looking forward to it. Thanks Ryan. All right. Take care.